I want to say, you haven't figured this out already, that it is official. Christmas is here. Uh, tomorrow we'll officially celebrate the historical event that changed the world as we know it. What we in the Christian community call the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And even though the majority of us in this room, the majority of those who profess faith in Christ, should have a, a similar meaning of what, or similar understanding of what Christmas is. In the Christian worldview, there's a very particular meaning of what Christmas is. That is not always the case amongst all Christians, and certainly not within the rest of our culture, where there often tends to be a very diverse understanding of what Christmas is, if there's even a, a receptivity towards it at all. And so Christmas has varied meanings depending on where you're coming from. We've offered you what we believe is the true, the, the unassailable truth of what Christmas is. Glory to God in the highest, peace to his people on earth, Jesus has come. That's what Christmas is for some of us. For some people, it's not that at all. Uh, for some people, this is nothing. This is just a, another Sunday, and tomorrow will be another Monday. For some people in our world, it's a couple of extra days off of work. For some people, it's the, the great ability to get and receive gifts, what we talked about last week, greatest gifts of all. Lots of diversity in what we understand Christmas to be. And that's why today, like last week, we're going to look at another passage of Scripture that teaches us something meaningful, meaningful about how the Christmas story deeply relates to our lives. And what I love about the Christmas story, Jesus is coming to earth, is that it is a narrative packed with heavenly realities meant to reshape our lives here on earth. Connected to what we sing and what we talk about and what we do when we leave this room is much more than history and nostalgia. Those things are not bad. But that is an incomplete understanding of Christmas if we just verbalize the words that Christ has come, but then miss the fact that Christ's coming literally meant God opened heaven and tried to paint a new picture for the way he wanted the world to function. A picture that will one day be fulfilled and restored at Jesus' second advent, his second coming, when he comes back once and for all and, and does away with what we know now and restores the earth in its fullness and its glory and perfection. Everything we talk about today, everything we've sung about today, is God telling us that there is something that exists in heaven. There is a kingdom that is meant to define a kingdom. God's kingdom in heaven is meant to reshape this kingdom on earth. And that kingdom begins with your life and mine. God's not interested in building temples, starting wars, or conquering the world. God is interested in building a new kingdom. One where the peace of Jesus, is, Jesus his love, and his life are spread to the world, to our neighbors and our nations. And so this morning we're going to study one of the most famous Christmas passages in the Bible. It's the account of how the first shepherds responded to the news that the Messiah had arrived. That's a, a long narrative we read, but we're only going to look at one element of it. How the angel declared Jesus coming to the world, and the, and the shepherds responded to it. And what's funny about this is this is, a, this is a very romanticized story in our modern Western Christmas culture. And oftentimes that romanticized narrative causes us to miss the powerful message God wants us to understand through it when it comes to how he chose to work in the world for the first time and how he wants us to continue to work in the world on behalf of Jesus. And what I mean by the first time is, is in the way he moved from the old covenant to the new covenant, the New Testament, the era of the church, the era you and I exist in. And so today, the eyes, through the eyes of the shepherd, it's my hope, more than anything, that we would see the good news of Jesus' birth is not just the once and all remedy, antidote, to redeem us for sin. It is that, and it is very powerful, that truth. Inherent in it is also an application that matters immediately for our present lives. It's this promise to eradicate our fear. Interesting that where God brings light in life, he is literally offering us, what we talked about last week, he's offering us a place at his table. He's inviting us to dine with him and to be in meaningful relationship with him. That's what the coming of Christ means. But connected to, to what we experience at God's table is this reality that we can have no fear in our life, at least Theoretically, that's what's supposed to happen. 
to where God's presence abounds in our lives, fear falls away. And that word fear is the first truth that I want to share with you from Luke 2. I want to talk about that for a little bit this morning. First truth I want to share with you is this. It's a simple truth, but it's a truth that often has profound implication on the quality and the substance of life we have on this earth. Being afraid is a condition every human suffers from. Every one of us, at times, past, maybe right now, in times that will come, will suffer from this syndrome of being afraid of something, of being fearful of something. And I want to reread Luke 2, 8 through 9, so you see where we're going with this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And when this happened, the shepherds were not happy. They were not leaping with joy. There were no sugar plums in their stockings. Luke tells us they were utterly terrified. That's what he says happens. When the announcement of Jesus in the world happens, they're utterly terrified. And although most people would likely have a hard time admitting it, living in fear is a pretty common attitude for people. And if you've ever been ruled by fear, you know exactly what I mean. This posture literally paralyzes you from making any kind of progress in life. When fear is left unchecked in your heart, you will likely stop making wise decisions and start making decisions with the sole motivation of protecting yourself from your phobias. In other words, fear is now the, the God that sits on the throne of your heart. And you no longer think about progress and process and, and wisdom and good, good you're in the attempt of trying to make good decisions, what happens is you're really reacting to fear. Living in fear is a condition of the heart. It stagnates life, it kills growth, and it is guaranteed to rob you of the joy the manger is meant to show us, the light that the Advent table really reveals to us. It is the antithesis to the kind of abundant life Jesus offers us, first in the manger, then when we believe in him, and when we live our lives for him. As a, an analogy I like to use about living a life defined by fear, it often looks like a turtle in a shell. And if you've ever seen a turtle in a shell, which you probably have if you live in Florida, they're in our yards all the time and are utterly protected and you can't do anything about them. They're there and you just have to look at these animals literally popping their heads in and out of their shells. That's what they do. The first time you walk up on a turtle, the head is gone. It's just this big rock-looking entity in your yard. And what's interesting about this is that it's sort of the way we function. It's a similar rhythm, the way we function when we think about fear in our lives. When whatever it is that makes us fearful, we often tend to stay away from it, we tend to hide from it, we tend to, to put our head back into the shell when it, when it comes up upon us. Whatever threatens our false sense of security, that's what fear is, it's a false sense of security. If we can just stay away from it, we'll be secure. What happens is, it's actually nothing but secure and it's a complete lie. And this is usually done at the expense of experiencing the joyful life God has for you outside of the shell. That's the problem with fear is you can't see the great wondrous journey God's building before you if your head is tucked away in the shell. God wants you to overcome the fear, press into him. So take for example, let me give you some common examples of this. Fear-based living in our culture today. More than ever, people say things like, well, the idea of marriage is sort of antiquated, um, but I don't really want to get married because I'm, I'm just afraid of commitment. Like, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to sort of stay away from that because my head's going to go back in the shell. Too much commitment for me. Or, hey, uh, I'm really miserable at my job right now, or things are very challenging, and I, I think I might even have some opportunities or options outside of what I'm doing, but, but to do that means to step into the unknown, and I just won't. I'm just going to sort of exist in a place where I don't even know that I should be anymore, uh, because if I pop my head out of the shell, it might get risky. I can't see what tomorrow holds, but I sort of know what the immediate does. Or people say, you know, I'm afraid to choose an educational career path or a, a, a vocation 
Because what if I choose the wrong thing? You know, I'm on earth for like 80 years. And what if I pick a job or pick a school or pick a degree or pick a whatever? You fill in the blank. We don't pick something because we're fearful that we might pick the wrong thing. Head in the shell. Missing out on the great journey of life. Well, what about with our relationships? We say, you know, I'm going to keep people at a distance. I'm going to engage the idea of Christianity, the idea of Jesus, the idea of church. But I know to meaningfully root into any of those things, to have powerful community with people, means that I've got to get a little open. i got to get a little vulnerable, a little transparent. i got to share my life with people. And I've got to be willing to be patient with people as they share their life with me. That is a really hard way to live. And there's a ton of fear associated with it. We'll talk about that here in a few moments. What will people think? What will people say? Or what about this? Uh, I'm afraid to let my children grow up, you know, because I'm, I'm losing control over them. To, to recognize they get older and grow up means, you know, I, I can't punish them every day or keep them in their rooms or take away an item. At some point, they'll, that won't be an option for us anymore. So we micromanage or try to overly parent our children. All things that can be... These can be healthy decisions, how we, how we make these decisions, but when ruled by fear, we're not actually making a decision for progress. We're actually making a decision to avoid our phobia. So whatever it is, if you live your life making decisions based on avoiding your fears, the abundant life Jesus promises you is going to pass you by. And make no mistake, this attitude permeates every area of life, including our faith. Fear can keep you from believing in God for the first time and from doing things for Him, great things for Him, once you do believe in Him. Taking next steps with God, it's never going to happen if we are fearful about the unknown and what next steps might mean. The scripture says this is a dangerous attitude to embrace, repeatedly and most pointedly in 2 Timothy 1.7. It will be behind me. Paul tells us this. He says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And this is an interesting way to frame this because it's sort of like a seesaw. And what he's saying here is like, where there is fear... There is an absence of the presence of God. Where there is fear, there is an absence of a sound mind in God. Where there is fear, there might be a lack of power or love in your life. Because you're not looking at the one thing that can keep you from being afraid. The majesty and the glory of our Father in heaven. One of these two things is out of sync. And wherever the abundance of God exists, as we'll see here momentarily, the presence of God exists, fear tends to fade away. But the same is true in the reverse. So what Paul tells us here is that anytime there is fear in our hearts, it is a very strong indication that the absence of God's robust presence, it's no longer in our lives, it's not there. Or at least we maybe hid the light for a season. And Luke corroborates this truth when he tells us about the initial reaction the shepherds had when God first invited them to come and see Jesus. That's exactly what's happening here. Luke tells us the shepherds were more than just afraid. He uses this word terrified. And this scene in Luke is a perfect example of what I mentioned earlier when I said this story tends to be highly romanticized in our culture. I have an image I want you to look at as I talk through this this morning with you. Uh, take, for example, there's a million pieces of artwork okay, that sort of depict this. Some are more aggressive than this. Some are not aggressive at all. But this, to me, was the best one I could find that sort of depicts what I'm saying here. Take, for example, the opening lines of the Great Christmas song, The First Noel which says, the first Noel, the angels did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay. And a lot of that artwork, it illustrates, a lot of the artwork that depicts a scene from that song is similar to this behind me. Now I want you to look at this for a second. Um, oftentimes these images, this, this terrified posture the shepherds have is sort of reduced to something like this. Here, the shepherds are like a bunch of clean cut guys 
They're dressed in pretty, pretty blue robes. You know, like the first century version of skinny jean robes. They're sort of like clean cut and there's not a single shred of dirt under their nails. And while, while we learned from Luke that they were cowering, here, this is what you and I will do when we walk out of this movie theater this morning. It's a little dark in here. And when we go into the foyer, we'll squint a little bit, right? But you won't be afraid or terrified. You'll get over that and move on. This is a perfect example of a problem, I think, that does not depict the reality of what's actually going on here. We need biblical truth, not artwork and imagery. The Bible tells us this is not how the scene opened. People weren't, like, squinting a little bit. It tells us that the first response these men had to the, the, the announcement of the Messiah... And the angels that delivered it, utter terror and fear. Like hiding behind their sheep, fear. Not skinny blue jean robes. Now, I want to point something out about this. About how being terrified like this is an astounding description for a shepherd. Because these guys, unlike the artwork often depicts, were some of the most tough and rugged people in the first century world. I want you to get into their heads for a moment. They earned a living by sleeping outside unprotected in the elements. They were never clean. They spent their days taking care of their flocks and defending them from the dangers of living in the wild. You know, go live in the forest for a little bit and see what that feels like. They are constantly defending their flocks from wild animals and perhaps as significant a threat, maybe even more significant a threat, is other people. Thieves, folks that wanted to hurt the sheep, take them. They are truly, the best way I can describe this, Truly the ancient world equivalent of the, of the, of the American cowboy. That's probably the, the closest image we have to what a shepherd was like in the first century world. And what's interesting about this, this nostalgic contradiction is that in their world, danger was pretty much the rule and fear was the exception. So when Luke says the initial response of a group of hard, crusty, steely-eyed men was completely terrified to God's invitation to come and see Jesus, it's a critical point for us to think about. And it is really where you and I have something in common with the shepherds here. We don't move sheep today in our lives, but we have the same hearts as the shepherds did. And this is a place where there's a commonality. Now, maybe you're saying, what, what is that? Well, I'm glad you asked, because I want to tell you about it. <laughs> the initial response people have when God calls them to trust and believe in Him more deeply is almost always some sort of fear. That's almost always our response. And when I say this, I want to be very clear that it's going to be very easy for us to take what I'm about to say and sort of relegated it to those who don't believe in God. It's certainly applicable there. But I want you to know that this statement that I'm about to make or that I'm making now is just as true for the believer as it is for those who are far from God alike. It is often fear that keeps, no matter where we are coming from, fear keeps us from coming to Jesus more deeply, more closely. And there are a lot of things we can talk about when it comes to what we tend to be afraid of. But since Christmas time is the time we get to focus on Christ coming to the earth, I want to focus on some of the fears that keep us from believing in Jesus for the first time or believing him more deeply. And remember, belief is not like the complete laying down of your brain. Belief and faith, we say this regularly here, is a step beyond that, just what you can see. You know, we didn't come to this room today just making up Christianity. We have an incredibly strong historical pedigree for this. And faith often requires us to take a ton of information and apply it to our hearts and ask whether or not we actually want to believe it and the way God says about this. Is the story of Jesus just a great history narrative? The story of the shepherds just a great history narrative? Or is this something that God really is saying, the heavenly reality I paint for you in my word is meant to have an earthly reality in your life right now? I'm going to vote for the latter. And what I want to talk about here is two fears in particular that seem to be the most common amongst people when it comes to following God. Remember, whether you're in Him or not in Him, 
whether you're, you have people in your life far from God or, or do not, this is where we are almost always coming from. The first one is this. Some people choose to not believe in Jesus at all or more deeply because they fear what it will cost them to follow him. The, the, the nature of the Christmas story basically says it costs God everything for us to be able to follow him. And oftentimes we will look at that sacrifice, that cost, God becoming man, and when we look at it on the scale of economy in our lives, we're, we're sort of fearful of what that actually might mean. And I get that. I've been in two different states trying to follow what God wants to do in my life and multiple homes, but I don't see it as fearful anymore. I sort of see it as like sort of adventurous. That's where I'm at now. I gotta tell myself that to stay sane. Now, I've often heard very intelligent people, okay, both in the academic world, and remember, what happens in the academic world always trickles down to the street. You can't find anything written 20 years ago that doesn't have an effect on life today. That is the nature of what gets discussed in the classroom. It always shapes culture. And if you look at the movements of atheism in our culture, uh, very intelligent and influential atheists, whether you're in a classroom or sitting in a coffee shop believing this, a lot of people will say, listen, uh, we have faith, or people believe this type of stuff, because you're just weak. You have to choose to believe in a God. It makes sense if you're a weak human. You have to, you have to believe in a God who, uh, who, who kind of sorts everything out for you in life because the truth is that you just really can't cope with the realities of your life. And so they'll refer to believing in God as like copping out. They'll say becoming a Christian is, is taking the easy road because you've traded your ability to think on your own for a God who does it for you. A God who tells you how to think, live, and act in every, in every area of life. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that this is not true. Uh, you know there is seldom anything easy about true Christianity. And don't confuse easy with joyful. Meaning like it is totally possible for us to recognize the cost of following Jesus and to do it with a joyful heart. That's the point I'm making here. But I want to highlight that there is seldom anything convenient about truly following Jesus. There is almost always a cost connected to it in some area of life. That is why when the, when, when the disciples first come to Jesus, they're sort of like, you know, ready to go. And every time he's talking to them, he's like, slow down. Count the cost. Come and see. Think about it from this angle. He's, he's raising the bar of what it means to follow God so that when we make this decision, we're really following God in meaningful, not marginal ways. And what's interesting in this is that there's always a, a beautiful blend of God's grace and strength kind of commingling with the strange joy and satisfaction of what it means to, to follow Jesus despite that cost. God asks us to give up our time. He asks us to give up our money. He asks us to put ourselves in second pole many times for the sake of other people. Those are not easy things. But they're things that, that are sort of followed by a strange, meaningful joy. And I can say these words to you, but unless you have felt this, they will not make sense to you. And if you have no metric in your mind or heart for this, it is my prayer that you really ask God to help you feel what it means to count the cost of following Jesus and live on behalf of his kingdom for the sake of other people. You know, living like Jesus regularly causes us to deal with things that people who have no room for Jesus in their hearts don't have to deal with. If I may be blunt, I just want to say that the charge of atheism, whether it's formal or friendly, the charge atheism makes against Christianity is more true of atheism than it is of Christianity. And i give you a good example of this. Years ago, uh, I, had, I have a friend up north who's uh, been a lifelong police officer, and I had this interesting conversation with him about his job, his professional life. I also have some friends who are uh, firefighters in New York, and it's interesting hearing how they see life, because they live in a, in a world, and they have a vocation where they are constantly putting their lives uh, secondary to the nature of the people. They're fighting crime and, and fires. And this law enforcement buddy I had, I asked him uh, how things were going on the job. 
And what he said to me was something interesting. It was a very short statement with a ton of baggage connected to it. He said, uh, this job just makes loving people very, very, very hard. That's what he said to me. Now, I've shared stories like this with you before, and I've heard this sentiment before, especially from family members who were in law enforcement. However, what I find most interesting about this is this challenge that my friend had, what he's being forced to do with it, because he loves God. And so because of his love for Jesus, what's happening here is he has this God-given tension in him that he cannot fade away from. He is walking this fine line where he is working with some of the most difficult and at times dangerous people in our society. Yet he wrestles with this daily tension of not trying to hate the very people that oftentimes want to hurt him badly. And he admitted that in his world, a lot of people just throw the towel in on this very early. They just get hard and jaded. And as a result, they just really start to have a very unhealthy view of all people. And what he's highlighting here is what I'm saying here. The deep tension that exists in the life of a Christian who is caught between the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven. He is being forced to deal with something because God wants him to deal with it. He has not copped out or, or given the faculties of his mind to some other entity. He's actually having to figure out how to live in, in more profound and meaningful ways. And that way we're talking about here is the kingdom Jesus inaugurates at his, at his birth. He's talking about how truly following God forces him to deal with some stuff that some people might conveniently be able to walk away from. Yet in, the, in God's grace, he's coming to this place where he finds a peculiar joy in that struggle. It's a cost, but one worth counting. And so here's my point here. When we talk about fear, especially not taking the next step with Jesus because we are afraid of what it might cost us. If you're here today not taking the next step with Jesus because you're afraid of what it's going to cost you, if you're avoiding Jesus altogether, meaning you don't know where you're at with him, but you know that to follow him means your life is going to change, that is true. I'll just tell you that now. Or if you've been in Jesus a long time, but you just avoid certain things in the Bible that Jesus gives you, because you know that when you read the whole counsel of the Word of God, the whole Scripture, God's going to start calling you to reorient your whole life around all that stuff. Something's very inconvenient for us. If this is sort of how you've entered this room, I want to encourage you to doubt that doubt today. That is a false sense of security. You have to get your head out of that turtle shell. And I want to challenge you to give your life to Jesus for the first time, or... Maybe it's the time for you to give the areas of your life that you are selectively holding back from Jesus, back to Jesus. He knows what they are, and he's got a ton of grace when you communicate with him about this. But ask if the Christmas story today is meant to light up an area of your life that Jesus wants back, whether it is your life for the first time or an area of it that you just have, have hidden, you know, cloaked in darkness. Let his grace, not your bias, change the way you see those costs before you make your final decision. And I just want to encourage you to not let fear keep you from taking any step of Jesus. Any step from becoming a more devoted disciple of Jesus Christ. Which is the whole reason we started this church. Is to make disciples that love God who want to make disciples. Because if you do, you will miss out on the point of the Christmas story. And you will miss out on the great adventure of what it means to follow Jesus beyond the manger. Don't let fear keep you from taking that next step. Count the cost. Secondly, some people choose to not believe in Jesus... Because they fear God and his people will judge them. Now, this is an interesting one. Remember what I told you about Christmas. This is the time of the year where people are nostalgic about it. This is the time of the year where people, they really root into the Christian story. And for some people, this might be a time of the year that recounts a place in their life where they've had a negative experience with the Christian story. And the fear here is that God could never love me. The idea behind this fear is that God could love me and the people of the church will reject and judge me if they really knew me. Now, I know... There have been examples of this, both inside and outside Christianity. I always say this when we talk about judgment. 
this, this word when it's unhealthy, the sense we're talking about now. Judgment is not just a Christian, Christian thing. It's a people thing. And so it can be very easy to scapegoat certain entities of our culture. But here I, I want to talk particularly about unhealthy judgment in the eyes of those who follow God. We have to recognize that we're, we'd be somewhat naive to not recognize this is out there. And we'd also be unwise to not recognize, like what I talked about last week, that we misunderstand the nature of the cross when it breeds a fruit in us that is arrogance. The cross should not do that. The cross should not migrate us towards uh, arrogance or self-despair. It should migrate us towards a humble posture before God in all areas. That breeds in us a strength that produces genuine Christ-centered fruit. And so where there is unhealthy judgment, where there is arrogance, there is a fear. And if this is the fear keeping you from taking your next step for Jesus, like you've experienced this and it's a problem, or maybe you just have never experienced this problem, you just think this is what it's going to be like you're speculating, I want to ask you to revisit this for a moment, to pop your head out of the turtle shell with me for a few minutes today. And we're going to return to the story of the shepherds to see why. So culturally speaking, we know the shepherds were tough people. I've already told you that. But they were also a despised class of people who were largely rejected by the people they provided a valuable service for. The nature of their profession meant they were in the field all the time. And as a result, they could not observe the religious regulations of Moses' law, which is the law of the day for the first century Jew. And especially, they can't, even, they can't even cover the basic elements of the law. But when you layer in the roughly 700 laws that the, the man-made religious laws, the Pharisees, heaped on top of Moses' law, it basically meant these people at all times in their lives were ceremonially, ceremonially excuse me, and spiritually unclean. And so some shepherds uh, were, were even known to, rate, to participate in, in thievery. Not all shepherds were good people. Some of them were working the system. And because of this... There's a, uh, an unhealthy sort of aura around the shepherd. It's not necessarily the job you grow up wanting. For a great many people, it's the one you got when there wasn't much else to do. And so because of this sat status, there's somewhat a sketchy nature behind them. At least that's the way they're viewed. So low in the, Judas, the, the Jewish totem pole that they weren't even deemed credible witnesses in a Jewish court of law. And if you understand the significance of that statement, it's pretty profound. Because the law ruled the day. What they were saying was you don't really have the credibility to speak into the law at all. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about this shepherd reality in light of the Christmas story. Let the, the clean nails and the blue robes fade away for a moment. It is to this marginalized, outcast segment of society that the first announcement of Jesus' arrival was given to. Think about this. God didn't go to those who thought they were fixed. He didn't start with those who thought they mastered the law. He went to the people whom he knew had a greater propensity to understand their brokenness. This is the origin of the gospel story. God redeeming brokenness. Amen. God working in the hearts of those who, who are no longer proud. Or who are ready to lay their pride aside for a greater form of pride. God's glory. His majesty. This is a profound statement. The note of humility in Jesus' birth and his first audience. They serve as a sharp warning to anyone who tries to live a Christianity that values the external adornments of one's life more than they do the life of the person themselves. And so some of you might have had or know someone right now who's had an unfortunate experience with Christianity that placed a greater value on what you looked like on the outside than who God wanted to redeem on the inside. Whether this has happened in your own life or you're, you have people in your life right now, you have to know this is not the way God sees us. God sees us through the lens of Jesus' righteousness. And if we receive that righteousness... We are as righteous as Jesus. That's what the scripture teaches us. And I'm not just talking about this idea. I actually want to share with you something. I actually had an experience like this. 
uh, in my 20s, just a few months after becoming a Christian. I shared this story with you the first year of restoration, almost eight years ago. And I know you all hang on my every word, so you'll remember every element of it. But I want to share with you again now, because I guess this is a place where, no pun intended, I'm speaking kind of from the choir angle. Literally, months after becoming a Christian, uh, the guy who led me to Jesus invited me to a, a, a big Christmas play. And it's no secret that Christianity was a very hard sell for me. I sort of, I would never say I didn't believe there was a God, but I would say that I sort of believed there was a God in a notional, like, authoritarian manner. I mean, I believed there was something out there, but the idea of counting costs and following God was just not a place at all for me. And I was, I've always been pretty analytical, and I would just take joy in deconstructing people's, like, arguments about faith, trying to make them, you know, sound ignorant. Totally wrong attitude, but that's just where I was in my 20s. And so for me, coming to Christ was a, was a pretty significant conversion experience, pretty radical, and, and nobody expected it, not even me. And so after coming to Jesus, I, I asked these questions, and I started asking people, like, what do I do now? And they said, well, you got to start reading the Bible, and you should pray, and get a community, find a church. And I thought, awesome. Anytime somebody invited me to a church, I would just go to it. I just thought that that is what I was supposed to do. And so around Christmas time, I became a Christian in February of uh, 1997. And that first Christmas, something interesting happened. It was really crazy. Like, I, was, I remember sitting in my grandmother's living room, who has now passed away, hearing all of these Christmas stories, these songs, and they were all saying things to me I'd never heard before. Like, the stuff we sang today, that's just like the stuff you heard when you went to the mall. But there was like this whole language that God was communicating to me through these songs that I had never, ever felt before. And so when somebody said, my buddy, hey, I want, you want to go to this big Christmas play thing? I, th I said, of course, let's go. I'd like to hear more about this. And I went dressed as my usual self. It's funny, you know this is true about me because all of you have made fun of me this morning that I'm wearing a tie. One of you came up to me and asked where Anthony was this morning. <laughs> it's Christmas, I told you. Christmas and Easter, Jesus gets a tie. That's the way that it works. Every Christmas and Easter, he deserves a tie. I had to borrow this, so I'm sorry. <laughs> so I went to this, to this play in jeans, a pair of New Balance, and my Yankee cap. I still have this cap. It's been retired now. I'll get to that here in a moment. My friend and I entered this church. There were thousands of people in it. I'd never seen this before. Uh, Ten months ago, I would have called that a cult. Really. And we found our seats. We sat down, and we were talking. And I was just in awe of this whole thing. And while we were chatting, something grabbed my hat off of my head violently. A person, I, I didn't know what happened, but I turned around and I kind of figured it out like in the moment. Somebody grabbed the hat off of my head. And I'm telling you, there was such an irony in this because first I was a little shocked and then I looked around and then I was assessing the situation and I noticed there was this big badge that said guest relations on it. And I thought, holy moly, this is the worst guest relations team ever. And this guy just punched me in the back of the head. And what happened there was unbelievable. While holding in a crumpled up manner, I can still see my hat like in this dude's fist, he began scolding me about how young men should not wear hats inside a building, especially when it was in the house of the Lord. I got a lecture like I'd never heard of. And I'm not joking. I was newly saved and raging inside. And I stood up and wanted to rewrite the manual on guest relations for this guy when my friend grabbed my arm, literally pulled me down, and like started praying in tongues, rubbing oil on my head, anything he could get to calm me down. He was just holding on to me. And after I sort of came to my senses, which I genuinely believe was God's ability, not mine, because I share with you my challenges with anger, he started telling me what was going on here. He was discipling me. And these are the moments I most remember early on in my faith. He said, listen, what just happened there was wrong, 
And he said, and in God's eyes, I'm, I'm pretty confident that is not like the contact he wanted you to have here. But he said, you have no grounds here to meet unchristlike behavior with more unchristlike behavior. And that sort of just leveled me. I didn't even fully understand the implication of that, but I just knew he knew what he was saying, and I just affirmed it and followed. And that was truly one of the first experiences with a brand of Christianity, a brand of the church I had had very early on in my faith. And it hit me in some pretty strong ways. I knew there was something deeply wrong with the way I had been treated on two very serious levels. The first is it, it's just wrong to touch another man's Yankee cap. Uh, utterly wrong. You cannot do that. Like, in, in my family, the Yankees go back to the Dodgers. Like, before the, when the Dodgers went out, to, out west to California, like, my family inherited the Yankees. And so it's sort of like, it's more important to them than just about anything. And so they, these hats, I'm not joking when I say this, I still have every Yankee hat I've ever had. You wear them till they disintegrate. And then they are retired to a place of meaning and purpose in my closet. And so I was furious. And the second thing that hit me is it started making me ask questions like, who is the person that makes up these rules about the church? Who's the guy that says up north it isn't really a rule to wear a hat in the church? And in the Bible, the Jewish people were supposed to wear hats inside of a building. They were supposed to have a covered head. Down south, you can't wear hats in a building. You might be able to wear a hat in a church that meets in a movie theater, but definitely not at a church that has pews and owns a building. Seriously, I started asking, like, who is the person that has made up these rules? I was trying to sort through, like, the extra-biblical legislation of all this stuff. And I have my own theory on this. The person who made those rules up is the same person who said, you can't wear white pants after Labor Day, which is arguably the greatest contribution to the human race that we've ever had, right? This stuff is dumb. 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 Now, please hear me here. That was a, a life changer for me. I, had, I was at a point where I had, a, a, I had so much ability to judge there. But thank God I had God and a person in my life who was, who was steering me away from that. If you've been delaying your next step with Jesus because of past experiences, if you've dealt with unhealthy judgment, if you have people in your life who are dealing with this, or maybe you've not experienced any of this ever personally, but you've just heard that's how it is, I want you to consider what we're studying today. The shepherd story teaches us something deeply important about what God wanted to tell the world through the, through the first Christmas. This is the inaugural message of the kingdom of God. Jesus humbles himself. He is born in a manger. And his first audience is a group of lowly shepherds, terrified when they hear about him. Jesus spends his whole life combating this stuff, fighting against the tendencies, of, especially in this case of legalism, that take us away from grace. You can't, you can't appreciate the law until you understand grace. And you will never appreciate grace until you understand the law. That's where maturity happens. What we see with the, the shepherds is that no one is meant to be exempted from the love of God. They symbolize, truly, where we all are in life. The shepherds are us. We are all unworthy of God's grace. Yet in Jesus, he bestows a worth on our lives that readies our hearts to receive his grace. And so frankly, the gospel, the good news that God declares through the Christmas story is that we're all sinners before God. We're all lowly shepherds in our own ways. We've all got a crook in some area of our life. And no matter where we're coming from, in Christ there is grace and forgiveness. In Christ we have the ability to overcome these fears that keep us from knowing him or knowing him more deeply. And if you will just think about that, pray about that, and process that gospel truth, you will find that the hard edges of being identified as a sinner falling before God, that will, uh, that will repaint a picture in your life. You'll see things differently. The, the terrified nature of that, the proud nature that resists that, what happens is God will paint a different narrative for you. What is the picture? Well, no matter where you are, 
no matter who you are or where you're coming from in life. What this message teaches us is that you don't need to fear the call of God to take your next step with Jesus because God's Christmas message really is good news. And here's how we'll begin to narrow to an end. This is why Luke doesn't end the Christmas story with the shepherds cowering in fear before God. Thank God it isn't like they were terrified. Let's get to the next book of the Bible. That's not what happens here. God in his grace consoles the shepherds. God knows this is a response from us. And so what the angels do is they start comforting. They immediately start shepherding the hearts of these people in the healthy sense. In his grace, God consoles the cowering shepherds and lets them know that although their fear is often a natural response we exude when God invades our life, he doesn't want us to remain fearful. He wants us to receive him, trust him, and follow him. Listen to how Luke 2, 10 through 12 ex- explains the, 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 the next section of what happens after the, the shepherds are terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. You see, once the shepherds understood God's good news, it changed the way they responded to them. It, it, the, whole, the whole picture changed. And the opening chapters of Luke's gospel show us a bunch of people. And the following chapters show us the same thing. Okay? These, these shepherds, which are heroes of the faith, in clean, perfect robes, all initially respond to God's call in their lives with fear and confusion. And in his gospel, Luke reveals this important pattern to us. Wherever there is fear in the human heart, wherever there is fear, God's presence is likely not there in the way that it needs to be. God's angels here correct that. They graciously respond to it, this issue of fear, by encouraging the people to trade their fears for the good news that they come to proclaim. Don't be afraid, they said. Listen to me. There's something else I want you to know. The shepherds are the greatest examples, the earliest examples we have, of people choosing to trust in the good news that the light has come. And in Luke's narrative, every time, read it today, every time someone chooses to believe God's good news about Jesus, their initial fears are replaced with adoration. It's almost instantaneous every single time. We even read it about Mary last week. The story of the shepherds further verify the good news of Jesus being the antidote to all fear. So know God offers you eternal light and life, but that doesn't begin after you leave this earth. It begins right now. These rough and rugged men, terrified at the first sight of the angel and God's presence. Yet after being encouraged to examine the message of salvation behind the messenger that terrified them, in verses 13 through 14, we read that the angels, they break out into praise, a praise so moving that the shepherds immediately decide to go to Bethlehem and see the good news for themselves. They do what every person has done after that story. Jesus says, here I am, come and see. And that's exactly what they do. And the main moral of the Christmas story is this. I pray these next words will define this week for you. Once people see Jesus with their own eyes, once you get past the fears and the oppositions and all that stuff, once you move away from that stuff and actually talk about Jesus for a little bit, what happens is we are always deeply and joyfully changed. That's what happens. We are always moved from fear to adoration. And then here there's an important missional note, which we won't address today, but you should know. Where that adoration abounds, this insatiable desire to spread the good news of Jesus to others also follows. They recognize it's good news. And the movement of the church follows the chapters that we are reading about today. Remember, after Luke comes Acts, and Acts tells us about this. This story shaped and reshaped the world as we know it. And that's what Christmas is about. The good news of Jesus' arrival changed the lives of those who believed. It can do the same for you and I today. 
And so if you've never gripped the Christmas miracle, it is my genuine prayer you would open or reopen your heart to God's good news today. Believe for the first time or believe more deeply that in Jesus our Savior has been born. A Savior who brings the good news of God's grace, love, and light to the hearts of his people. And that's why we light this fifth candle, usually the evening of Christmas Eve. Because the light has come. And what the Christ candle teaches us is that no longer do we wait in anticipation for joy, peace, hope, and preparation. He's here. And with it came all of that. Yeah. And so it's my prayer that as we move into our response time, the beautiful truths and the light of the Christ candle would be what guides your hearts over these next days. And especially during these brief moments we have before we move on to the rest of the activities we have for the rest of our day. As we close this morning, ask yourself, I ask our church this every Sunday, and I will ask it to you again. What is Jesus saying to you about your faith? What is Jesus saying to you about your trust in him? And equally as important, what will you do about those questions when you leave this room this morning? Pray with me.